Pastor Bruce is on leave, so I'll be occupying this for the next four weeks. Nehemiah, we are up to chapter 2. We want to study this book together because it's a season to build, not just only the physical building project, but rebuilding our own lives as well. A season to build. So we talk about Nehemiah already attained permission from the king to go and return to Jerusalem to rebuild the wall. And now we come to this part where what did he actually do? He, he had five attitudes that helps him to, uh, to reach where he wants to be in going. Now that he's going, what he actually did. So today we are going to talk about how he tackled five tasks. Okay, Let me read to you first from verses 11 to 20 of chapter 2. Uh, I got a bit stuck, Ian. Can you help me? Nehemiah chapter 2. Uh, Alright. I went to Jerusalem. He made the journey. I went to Jerusalem and after staying there three days, I set out during the night. Not day, huh? during the night with a few others. I had not told anyone what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. There were no mounds with me except the one I was riding on. By night, I went out through the valley gate towards the jackal well and the dung gate, examined the walls of Jerusalem which had been broken down and his gates which had been destroyed by fire. Then I moved on towards the fountain gate and the king's pool. But there was not enough room for my mouth to get through, so I went up the valley by night, examined the wall. Finally, I turned back and I re-entered through the valley gate. The officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing because as yet I had said nothing to the Jews or the priests or nobles or officials or any others who would be doing the work. Then I said to them, you see the trouble we are in? Jerusalem lies in ruins and his gates have been burned with fire. Come on, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and we will no longer be in disgrace. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God on me and what the king had said to me. They replied, let us start rebuilding. So they began this good work. And here come the bad word. But when Sanbalat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite, officials and Gisham the Arab heard about it, what did they do? They mock and ridicule us. What is this you are doing? They ask. Are you rebelling against the king? I answered them by saying, the God of heaven will give us 
success. The God of heaven will give us success. We, his servants, will start rebuilding. But as for you, you have no share in Jerusalem or any claim or historic right to it. The journey took four months to reach Jerusalem. He heard about Jerusalem. He heard that it was badly burned and destroyed. But for the first time, he went and had a look. And it took him four months, the journey. And he did five things. Number one, he tackled five tasks. Number one, he replenished his resources. He replenished his resources. He had been traveling for four months. He suffered from camel lack. Not jack lack, but camel lack. And he was tired. He needs to replenish his resources. So the first point is very simple. He said, I went to Jerusalem and after staying there three days, he recovered three days. Three days he just sleep. He just rested. Interestingly, uh, in, in chapter 8 of Ezra, because Nehemiah was the third person that went back to rebuild. The first one was Zerubbabel. The second one was Ezra. You can read the story of Ezra. And then the third one was Nehemiah. Ezra did the same trip as well, went through the same journey. I'll tell you a little bit about him. He had a very different theology from Nehemiah. He went there and he also rested for three days when he arrived. Let me just read this to you in Ezra 8 verse 31 and 32. I don't have it on the PowerPoint. On the 12th day of the first month, this Ezra, okay, we set out from the Ahava Canal to go to Jerusalem. The hand of our God was on us. And he protected us from enemies and bandits along the way. So we arrived in Jerusalem where we rested three days. When he arrived, he rested three days as well. And interestingly, he said, the hand of our God was on us and he protected us from enemies and bandits along the way. But not Nehemiah. Why? Because Nehemiah had help, right, from the king. Remember he requested protection from the king? To send some bodyguard, you know, with him, you know. But not Ezra. Ezra has different theology. And some people we all hold different theology. Ezra said, Well, God is going to protect us. We don't need all these people. And true enough, God protected him. But not Nehemiah. And Nehemiah said, No, no, I want protection. I want these people to come along with me. Maybe the situation has changed. There's maybe a, a, at that time there had a bit of civil war and all that. We don't know. But Nehemiah asked for protection, but not Ezra. Ezra just said, Well, God will protect me. I don't need all this. I just go. It doesn't mean to say that Ezra got more faith than Nehemiah. Sometimes situation changed, and we don't necessarily need to draw that kind of conclusion. And, uh, and he rested for three days. So the very first thing that Nehemiah did was he replenished his resources. Don't try to make major decisions when you are tired. Don't make decisions when emotionally you are unstable. You will live to regret it. And Nehemiah rested for three days just to recuperate. The recuperate. Uh, one of the greatest theologian, Jewish theologian in the 20th century, is a guy by the name of Abraham Heschel. Uh, he marched with Martin Luther King Jr. during the civil rights movement. Uh, 
this is what he wrote. He said, Jewish culture has been preserved for thousands of years. And you know why? He said, I tell you why. This is his reason, okay? He said, why everywhere you go, Jewish can preserve their culture. This is his reason. And I, and I believe that. He said, the faith of the Jew is not a way out of this world. But actually, the faith of a Jew is a way of being within and above this world that you live in. Not to reject it, but to surpass civilization. The Sabbath day is the day on which we learn the art of surpassing civilization. To set apart one day a week for freedom. A day on which we will not use the instruments which we which have been so easily turned into weapons of destruction. A day of being with ourselves, a day of detachment from the vulgar, of independence, of external obligations, a day on which we stop worshipping the idols of technical civilization, a day on which we use no money, a day of amistice in the economic struggle with our fellow men and the forces of nature. And then he concludes by saying, is there any institution which holds out a greater hope for man's progress than the Sabbath? He said rest is so important. The Sabbath day is so important that you set aside, not being encaptured by following the pace of this world and get caught up with it. But Sabbath is a day, he said, you focus on God. Put things into perspective. Put things into perspective. Because we can caught up with, with everything that we are in. But it's a Sabbath day, the Lord's day, coming to church on Sunday, set aside to give us the correct perspective in life. And his conclusion is that Sabbath helped the Jewish people to surpass civilization because of rest. Rest. And we all need rest. Not just only physical rest, but mental rest as well. Because mentally, is we are bombarded by every possible sources nowadays. There was a story about a man challenged uh, another person an all-day wood chopping contest. And the challenger worked very hard, stopping only for a brief lunch break. But the other man had a leisurely lunch and took several breaks during the day. And at the end of the day, the challenger was surprised and annoyed to find that the other fellow had chopped substantially more wood than he had. He said, I don't get it. Every time I checked, you were taking a rest. And yet you chopped more wood than I did. And then the other man said, well, you, you didn't notice that I was sharpening my axe when I sat down to rest. And that's why I chopped more, faster. So rest is important. And Nehemiah, the very first thing before he took on the assignments of doing what he needed to do, he replenished his resources. Henry Norman says, Somewhere we know that without a lonely place, our lives are in danger. Somewhere we know that without a silence, words lose their meaning. That without listening, speaking no longer heals. And without distance, closeness cannot cure. Somewhere we know that without a lonely place, our actions quickly become empty gestures. A life without a quiet center easily becomes destructive. So 
space, rest, time with the Lord is essential. So the very first thing that Nehemiah did uh, was to replenish his resources, rest, take care of himself, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, uh, all these things we need to rest. Secondly, this is what he did. Secondly, he begins his work now. He assessed his needs. He accessed his needs. He began to observe. That's from verses 12 to 16. After he rested, recuperated, had his big breakfast, bacon and egg and all that, now he decided it's time to work. He assessed his needs. And so he set out during the night, just only with few people. He did not tell anybody. Just keep quiet. He did not tell anyone what God has placed on his heart to do for Jerusalem. He just kept quiet. I'm not too sure whether they have, they have informed he, has, he had informed these people that he actually was coming. I don't know. Uh, he said, I had not told anyone what God had placed on my heart to do. So he set out at night. Please notice at night, okay? Not daytime. And there were no mouths with me except the one I was riding on just by himself and a few other people that go with him. He said, by night again, I went through the valley gate towards Jekyll Wall. He surveyed the whole place by himself. He examined the walls of Jerusalem which has been broken down and its gates which had been destroyed by fire. And then he moved towards the fountain gate and the king's pool, but there was not enough room for my mouth to get through because all the rubles everywhere, you can't even ride through it. So he went up to the valley by night, he examined the wall, and then finally he turned back and re-entered through the valley gate. And verse 16 says this, he said, the officers did not know where I had gone. He just disappeared. They were upset. What was it, Nehemiah? We brought him supper. He just disappeared. He did not know where I had gone or what I was doing because why? As yet I had said nothing to the Jews, to the priests, to the nobles or officers or any others who would be doing this. Can you imagine Nehemiah did that? He did not tell these people what he was doing when he was going to tell these people that they are supposed to do the job. I think there are two very, very good reasons why he surveyed secretly. Uh, because had Israel's enemies observed him, as we already come across, and later on when you read Nehemiah, there were lots of enemies, all right? And he just wanted to ensure that, that his enemies didn't know that he was kind of there to survey, plan to rebuild the, the walls and all He wished to lay his plans without any possibility of leakage to the enemy before their execution began. You don't want to already have objection before you even started, isn't it? So that's why he has to do it secretly. Uh, words are very, very potent thing, you know. And 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 do you know that there's this phrase that came out during the World War One? The enemy spies used to hang around the British pubs to hear loose talk about ship movements. Sailors would talk about their next assignments, where they were going, when they were leaving, and vital information for the German submarines. And just a few careless words would tip the enemy off, and thousand lives would be lost. And so a slogan was raised to remind people of the terrible devastation that could result from words ill-spoken. And this slogan called, Loose lips, sink ships. Loose lips, sink ship. Just like that. Loose lips, sink ship. And so to remind people, be careful, be careful, be careful uh, what we said. But some people cannot. They have diarrhea, diarrhea of their mouth. You know, They suffer from diarrhea. Everything they have to broadcast to everybody, you know, they cannot keep to their heart. Uh, and, and here, Nehemiah had to do that. Nehemiah had to do that. 
remember in my old church, uh, somebody gave us a piece of six-acre land for a dollar. You got 18 acres, you want to give the church six acres just for a dollar with the condition that they have to maintain a, a kiln, a chimney, you know. Uh, before anything could be done, the whole church is already aware of it. And they, they haven't even got a, 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 a proper study and presentation. No chance. Already objection comes in and ended up nothing has been done. And some of us who attend the church knows, knows the story. And Nehemiah kept quiet because he wanted to present, prevent the enemy from uh, uh, coming up with a, a kind of... Uh, go against him. And I think another reason is of course was to formulate a plan first in his mind before he presented it to the Jew. Just like when he heard about the news, he paused for four months. Remember before he presented to the king, he already paused for four months and in the mind he's already planning. And so maybe that is also a reason uh, because he not just only has to fight the external side, he also has to battle internal front. Just like a church, a pastor, they not just only have to fight external sources, but many times you have to fight internal sources as well. And unfortunately, many Christians unconsciously, unconsciously, they become Satan's agent. Unconsciously, all right? Let me say this to you as a warning. You ought to be conscious. Unconsciously, sometimes Christians become Satan's agent to object the progress of God's work many times. You've got to be careful of that. So Nehemiah knows that. He's got to formulate his plan in his mind before he approached this people who is supposed to be doing the job. And as he surveyed the place, he realized that it was a very demanding job because the circuit of the walls was more than a mile long and a new wall needed to be three or four feet thick and 15 to 20 feet high. So this was not going to be easy but Nehemiah knew that he and his people had to give their best to it. And not only he realized it's a demanding job, it is also a hazardous job. Hazardous assignment because the enemy is lurking. And therefore he has to go out at night and survey and all that because the enemies are watching them. The enemy has been preventing them from rebuilding. It's not just, this is not the first time Ezra had tried doing it, Zerubbabel had tried doing it without success. Because this group of people appealed to the king. And the king issued an edict and said, stop building. So this is not the first time. This is the third, fourth time that they've been trying. And Nehemiah wants to ensure that it's going to succeed. So after resting, after assessing the needs, the third thing that he did, he began to recruit workers. He began to recruit workers for the job. This is what he said. Then I said to them, after he surveyed secretly, after he planned and all that, he said, you see the trouble we are in? What a smart man. He's a very wise man. He brings them some ownership, isn't it? He said, you see the trouble we are in? Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been burned with fire. Come on, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem. And then he had in a spiritual perspective to it. He said, and we will no longer be in disgrace. Look at the surrounding nation. They all have a border, everything. Why is it we don't have? And you believe this God? You lie in ruin? Can we not do something together? Do you, see, you not see the trouble we are in? 
Can we not just roll up our sleeve and do the work? Let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and we no longer will be in disgrace. You know, one of the hardest things in the ministry as a pastor is to recruit workers to do the work. Very hard. Many ministries that we have are shouldered by single people sometimes. Have you seen a week without Sarah in the music team? You see a week without Kitat sitting behind the, the place there? It's always hard to recruit people to do the work. It's very hard. Volunteers always very hard to uh, uh, kind of recruit. And so here, Nehemiah kind of have to recruit workers to do the work. And part of it is difficult is because we have to sacrifice. We have to sacrifice certain time. Even cooking is a sacrifice, right? No? Sacrifice your group, have to cook, you have to wake up early, marketing, cook, shop, and all that kind of thing. This morning, my wife and I want to wake up 6 o'clock to cook, but I ended up, alarm also I slept through, you know, first time. You know. Uh, don't know what happened. I woke up at 7 o'clock, you know, uh, to cook and all that kind of things. Uh, it it requires hard work. Serving God always requires a lot of hard work. I feel very inspired by a poem written by Amy Carl Michael was a uh, missionary to India from England. Uh, I was very inspired by her. Many people didn't know that she was bedridden for about 20 years towards the end of her life. And in the 20 years, she produced many books. She wrote many, many poems. And she died in India. And she was appealing for workers in England in those days where England was great. And this is what she said. And the the... I, I think I read this before. The, the poem is called Has Thou No Scar? Has Thou No Scar? It's a little bit small, but let me just read to you. He said, Has Thou No Scar? No hidden scar on your foot, or your side, or your hand? I hear thee, which is English people, I hear thee sung as mighty in the land. I hear them hail thy bright ascendant star. Has Thou No Scar? Has thou no wound? Yet I was wounded. I is referring to Jesus, okay? Yet I was wounded by the archer's spent. Lean me against a tree to die and rend. By ravening beasts that encompass me, I soon. Has thou no wound? No wound, no scar? Yet as the master shall the servant be. And pierced are the feet that follow me. But thine are whole. Can he have followed far who has no wound, no scar? Can you claim to be a disciple of Christ when you have no wound and scar? That's what she's trying to say. Is it possible a disciple of Christ has no wound and scar? Is it possible? Is it possible you have smooth skin all the time? I mean, not literally. You know. If you call yourself a disciple of Christ, how can you not have wounds and scars? It's part and parcel of life as a believer, as a follower of Christ, that you will always have wounds and scars, bullets, holes everywhere as a disciple. And here, uh, Jesus set the example. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. 
and so recruit workers is always hard because it requires sacrifice time to do the work of ministry there's a story about an ancient village in Spain and the villagers learned that a king would pay them a visit and in a thousand years a king had never come to that village before so excitement grew and then they say we must throw a big celebration the villagers all agreed but it was a very poor village and there weren't many resources and so someone came up with a very brilliant idea since many of the villagers made their own wines the idea was for everyone in the village to bring a large cup of their choice wine to the town square and we'll pour it into a, a large vat and offer it to the king for his pleasure and when the king draws wine to drink it will be the very best wine he's ever tasted so the day before the king's arrival, hundreds of people line up to make their offering to the honored guests. They climb a small stairway and pour their gift uh, wine through a small opening at the tap. And finally, the vet was full. So the king arrived and the, all the palm and all that and was escorted to the square, given a silver cup and was told to draw some wine which represented the best the villagers had. He placed the cup under the spigot turned the handle and then drank the wine but it was nothing more than water why? because everybody thinks like that they all reason I will hold my best wine and substitute water well with so many cups of wine my little one cup of water no one knows anyway the king will never know the difference but they don't realize that every human heart are the same because we are all cut from the same piece of cloth not only you can size people, people can size you too. Can you believe that? Not only you can read people, you know, people can read you. Remember that. Don't forget that. People can read you too. Not just only you can read people. And everybody thinks the same and ended up the king was dishonored. How sad, isn't it? How sad problem was everyone thought the same thing and the king was greatly dishonored we are all pretty much very similar uh, American psychiatrists used to say that uh, what is most private it is often most universal what is most private it is often most universal those things that you struggle with both privately is probably most universal because everybody struggles with the same thing there's no one there to say does it and here, Nehemiah tried to recruit workers. And not only he tried to recruit workers, the fourth thing he did, he inspired confidence in the people. He inspired confidence in the people. We need to inspire people to do the work for God. I sometimes fail that miserably. Uh, he inspired confidence in the people. Look at what he said. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God on me and what the king had said to me. They replied, come on, let us. All right, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm bored now. No need to say anymore. I'm convinced. Let us start rebuilding. So they began this good work. Nehemiah didn't reach Jerusalem because he was a skillful persuader. He didn't reach Jerusalem because the queen was possibly a compliant helper or because the king was a generous benefactor. He says because God was a sovereign provider. 
since God had done all that, he could certainly help them to complete the task of rebuilding the wall. He said, well, I, I told them the story, that how God has made that happen, how I was able to attain protection, provision, and everything, the timber, the, the, everything that we need to rebuild the wall has already been settled. You just only need to roll up your sleeve and use your muscle and to lay the brick. Everything has already been provided. God is sovereign. He is our provider. He has already made everything possible for us. He's changed the king heart. He made the king, you know, reply to me in a very gracious manner. Give me leaves. Give me materials. Everything given to me. So I told it to the crowd. He inspired confidence in them. God is in the picture. God has already paved the way for us. We must inspire confidence in people's lives. Ravi Zechariah wrote a book called Can Men Live Without God? And in that book, he told this story about Joseph Stalin. He said this, Joseph Stalin called for a live chicken and he hang hold of the chicken like this and he proceeded to use it to make an unforgettable point before some of his henchmen. Forcefully clutching the chicken in one hand, with the other, he began to systematically pluck out its feather. While the chicken struggled, he just, in front of his henchmen, he did that. Forcefully clutching the chicken in one hand, with the other, he began to systematically pluck out his feather. And as the chicken struggled in vain to escape, he continued with a painful denuding until the bird was completely stripped. And then he said to his henchmen, now you watch, okay? Now you watch. He slowly put the chicken down on the floor and he walked away with some breadcrumbs in his hand. Incredibly, the fear-crazed chicken hobbled towards him and clung to the legs of his trousers. Stalin threw a handful of grain to the bird and as he began to follow him around the room, he turned to his dumbfounded colleague and said to them, this is the way to rule the people. Did you see how that chicken followed me for food? Even though I had caused such torture, people are like that chicken. If you inflict inordinate pain on them, they will follow you for food for the rest of your lives. And with that promised debasement, Joseph Stalin reduced humanity to the level of animals. And intoxicated with power, he ruthlessly exterminated millions of his countrymen and prompting the suicides of several members of his immediate family. He did not inspire confidence in the people. He inspired fear in them. Did he survive? He didn't survive. The empire collapsed. Praise the Lord. Can you say praise the Lord? <laughs> inspired fear. Don't inspire fear in people. Fear will not last. Will not last. Love will last. And the gospel is a gospel of love. And therefore, love will produce long-term fruits. May not be immediate fruits, but long-term fruits. Fear will always produce immediate result. Let me tell you that. Don't do. You don't do. Don't touch. Don't touch. You, pro you produce immediate result, but it will not be a lasting result. Because it's changed your external behavior, it doesn't penetrate to the changing of your heart. And here, 
Nehemiah inspired confidence in the people. And finally, finally, which we will pick up again more as the chapters goes on, because this is just a this is a starting point. He had to number five, he had to handle opposition. After rested, he surveyed the place. He recruited workers, he inspired confidence in them, and lastly, he had to handle opposition. Anything you do, there will be someone ready with a bucket of cold water. Yes? Anything you do, bucket of cold water ready. Depending on how big is the bucket, that's all. Some have bigger bucket than others. Some have only a little cup. He had to handle some pipe, forever non-stop one. You know, hose. Sorry, a hose, forever garden hose from Bunnings, forever. And he had to handle opposition. Look at the opposition. Sanballat the Horonite. He's a he's a governor of Samaria. And Tobiah, the Ammonite, which is the governor of Ammon, which is all Israel enemy. North, south, and north, south, I think, and west. They're all surrounded by all these enemies. And Gisham, the Arab, heard about it. They mock and ridicule us. This is what they say. What do you think you're doing? Who do you think you are? Hello? Who do you think you are? What is this you're trying to do? Are you rebelling against the king? The first is discouragement. They always discourage you. They mock. They ridicule you. They jeer at them. They despise them. Nehemiah is basically saying that they mock us and ridicule us for even thinking we could pull this off. You will never succeed. Your work here is going to be a big failure. And in the end, you will be embarrassed. This was the first prong in their strategy to keep the rebuilding work from ever getting started. Discouragement. People will always discourage you, believe me. They will discourage you. Circumstances, people will always discourage you. Very hard to find encouraging people. Secondly, they use intimidation, threats and intimidation, isn't it? They say, are you rebelling against the king? Of course, Nehemiah didn't tell them, hey, king, give me permission, and this is a letter. I don't have to talk to these people. Are you rebelling against the king? The fact of the matter, as I said, in Ezra's time, Ezra, they all tried to rebuild the war, and these people collectively, with one voice, complained to the king, and the king agreed with these people, said that, oh, you did Jerusalem have a very terrible history, you know, of rebelling against king. So this group of people, they complained to the king, and then the king issued a decree, and he did, and said, stop the work. Stop the work. I read that to you two weeks ago. Stop that work. So that's why it's like, you know, that's why they can't build. They keep on applying for, they can't. And so here they are trying to say again, are you rebelling against the king? Remember last time? Why are you trying to start again? So discouragement, threats, and intimidation will always be, uh, be something that uh, 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 is always there. It's always there. And here, I like the last part and I'm finished. And this is what Nehemiah answered them. He said, The God of heaven will give us success. The God of heaven will prosper us, other version says. 
the God of heaven will give us success. We, his servants, will start rebuilding. But as for you, you have no share in Jerusalem or any claim or historic right to it. I particularly like this answer. Uh, I think Nehemiah demonstrates both wisdom and courage in dealing with these enemies, and we need that. Uh, he first and foremost appealed to God. He said, God will grant us success. Don't worry. God will not die. And testifying this God that we worship, sovereign and great. And secondly, he said, but as for you, you have no share in Jerusalem. He was wise in the sense that there is no time for diplomacy. I need to meet these enemies head on. Sometime, diplomacy may not be the best way forward. You know, come on, sit down and talk, compromise and all that kind of stuff that many people like to do. Uh, certain time we have to do it. But in this instant, Nehemiah said, no, no, you have no share in Jerusalem. I'm not going to bow down to you or kowtow to you. Nehemiah courageously confronted them and he drew the line between God's people so that they could not join in the project with the goal of sabotaging it. Uh, and I think that is very admirable. In this modern mood that we live in, peace seems to be the, the highest virtue. But I like to think that truth is also virtue. And many times in life, we don't have to compromise truth for superficial peace. Sometimes you just have to stick to the gun without compromise. Sorry, not this time around. No, no superficial peace. Just because I have to sacrifice truth. No, thank you very much. Other things is alright, but not this issue. I'm going to draw the line. And for that, Nehemiah was a great leader with discernment and wisdom to know what issue to compromise and what issue you must never compromise. There is no point in having superficial peace at the expense of truth. And we need that increasingly in this modern age that we live in. And so here's the story of Nehemiah. I'm going to close now. He started off by waiting upon the Lord, trusting the Lord. He prayed and he planned and then he testified. And after that, he get on, finally took the four-month journey, arrived in Jerusalem. He rested. He replenished his resources. He accessed the need. He surveyed. He recruited workers. He inspired confidence. And he handled opposition. And the work is about to begin. And you're going to see that over the next couple of months as we unpack Nehemiah, how he did that. Let me just close with this. What is the good news that we can take away from this? The good news for us in the end is that there is no opposition that will ultimately prevail against us in the church. No opposition. In the end, there is no opposition that will ultimately prevail against God's church. So how are we supposed to go about the task God has called us to do when we face with opposition and difficulty? How are we supposed to live out our lives as Christians when the world seems dead set against us? How are we supposed to go about our mission and make disciples of all nations when so many people are directly opposed to us? By reminding us the very same thing that Nehemiah said. 
that the God of heaven will give us success. And by confidently and boldly rising up day after day and continuing the kingdom building work he has called us and having the assurance that God is for us, who can be against us? Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for, for this wonderful, godly Nehemiah that inspired so many people in this rebuilding war. Thank you. Face incredibly among of opposition. And we here always face opposition too. And as we go about rebuilding the church, uh, you will provide for us. You will provide us the shortfall of the $370,000. You will. You are a God who provides. And we fear nothing. Nothing can oppose you. You are sovereign. You are strong. You are good God. And when we, are, when you are on our side, uh, we will always be in the majority. Thank you, Lord. You are good God. We bless you. We worship you. For us, each one of us, struggling with various issues in our lives, whether it is health issues, uh, whether it is financial issues, whether it is relationship with children or parents, uh, we ask that, Lord, you will help us and to claim this promise that the God of heaven will grant us success. Thank you, Lord. As we close off with this song, we're reminded that we walk by faith and never, never by sight. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Would you stand as we close this time with this lovely, beautiful song? Oh,
troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary but what is unseen is eternal. Thank you Lord. Thank you Jesus. Help us and open our eyes of faith as we leave this place know that all things are possible with Christ. Thank you, Jesus. May the amazing grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and His unconditional and the unfailing love of God and the empowering fellowship of the ever-present Holy Spirit be with you all now and forevermore. Amen.